Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome back to Netflix. For our next instalment celebrating the Crown Season 3 release, we're looking at the historical accuracy and what the Netflix series doesn't always get right. Barbie Kinkle, the only person you're going to scare is yourself! Charlie! What are you oh, doing? Keep the noise down. What are you doing here? Mace! Just in time. There's a whole load of police here. I think they're worried you're going to hurt yourself. How many children are you friends with? So hi, I'm Helen Daly. I'm the presenter of Netflix. I'm here with Tom Evans, Martina Betts and Frederica Miller. Hi guys. Hello. Hello. And you guys are our royal correspondents on Express.co.uk, so you guys are the right people to talk to today. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> no, you definitely are. Um, so yeah, we're going to talk about the inaccuracies or accuracies of The Crown. You know, there's been a lot made about whether the series is is accurate. Some people do take it as fact, and the royal family are saying, no, please don't. Um, so we're going to kind of set the record straight on it today. Um, particularly, um, thought we'd start with the politics side of things. So in the series, the Queen is shown as having a very good relationship with Harold Wilson. She's initially suspicious of him, as he's rumoured to be involved with the KGB. However, by the end of season three, she considers him to be somewhat of a friend and she asks him to invite her for dinner at Downing Street and we do see her have a lot of respect for Wilson um you know she does a lot for him after getting Margaret to help out with politics matters in America and he also encourages Elizabeth to go to Aberfan after the disaster in 1966. Tom how faithful is this? I think pretty accurate to be honest in terms of what we can gather um the stuff with the Soviet spy claims is really interesting um it's there's obviously an element of truth with it. MI5 did keep a file on him, but it was all it was basically dismissed quite late on. Um, quite interestingly, the Express were at the time were very um, kind of involved in this. And Chapman Pincher, who used to work as the correspondent here, uh, he exposed the Cambridge Five initially. So kind of McLean, Burgess, Philby, those lot. Um, and he was he was adamant basically until his deathbed that Harold Wilson was a Soviet spy. Um, Still to to this day, essentially. Yeah, as far as I'm aware, yeah. Um, so it's fascinating, really, whether the claims are true or not. But it, they were certainly kind of pursued, and MI5 basically dismissed them late on, didn't they? That's the <laughs> that's the crux of it. And Martina, yep. you know, you, you've made a lot kind of, of in your research about um, the relationship between the, the Queen and Wilson. Um, <clears throat> well, according to many historians, Harold Wilson and the Queen had got along remarkably well. Um, like many of his predecessors, Wilson did not come from a traditional ruling class background and consequently has been attributed to opening the Queen's eye to a world beyond their social class. And royal biographer Robert Lacey noted in particular that he persuaded the Queen to drop a lot of stuffy protocol that had remained since Queen Victoria. And Olivia Coleman, uh, who plays the Queen in season three, said she does think that the Queen is left-leaning in her politics, in part because of her relationship with R. Wilson and her friendship with him. Um, and she said, I think she's a lefty, but I think what's extraordinary and wonderful about her, she can be everything to anybody. Whatever you want her to be, she sort of is. I want her to be a lefty, and I think she's become... she's She is because she loved R. Wilson. So oh, that's, that's quite really interesting. interesting, yeah. 
And um, Tom, uh, you know, the Queen's relationship with prime ministers in general, it, she did like some and she didn't like others, right? As far as we can gather, yeah, it's, it's quite difficult sort of getting a gauge for this because the protocol is that you don't, you're not really supposed to talk about your interactions with the Queen. Um, some have been more vocal than others, like Boris Johnson at the moment. has broke protocol quite a few times already with this. Um, Tony Blair, quite famously, they allegedly didn't get on very well. Um, but then, obviously, Wilson was kind of someone that she did like, and John Major apparently was one that she she really did connect with. Um, but as I say, it's kind of it's very difficult to gauge because a lot of it's hearsay, and it depends on how much the prime ministers are prepared to disclose. Mm. And one who she maybe has a bit of more of a complex relationship with is Ted Heath. Mm. So he's particularly interesting in today's times because of Brexit. So he was the man who got the UK into the ECC, of course. And um, the Queen and Ted Heath's relationship seems strained in the Crown, with the Queen not always being his biggest fan. And in fact, she tells Wilson at one point how she cheered when he beat Heath in the 1974 general election. How much truth is there to that? We think it's very difficult, this, with the Queen's relationship with the EC, because she's very, been very, um, very quiet on it, mm. as far as we can gather. Um you know, there, there are occasions like there've been front pages where, like, for instance, there was one a few years back saying she backed Brexit, which was very controversial and ruled out and the palace were furious about it. Um, so I think I think there is truth in the, her frostiness with Heath. But over the EEC things, it's very difficult to judge. What would you? Um, well, the royal family stance in Europe has always remained largely unclear. But according to some of our research that we've done, Charles famously called Brussels a maddening bureaucracy in, 19, ni- in a- 1988 wow. while he was visiting um, the president of France with Diana. So, But then in May 2019, last year, Prince Charles said the UK and Germany's relationship must endure after Brexit. So, so we don't really know. It's There are a few things that suggest they might be Brexiteers. Maybe they're not. We don't know. <laughs> well, they're not supposed to really tell no. them, <laughs> I guess, really. Um, Martina, I know that you have a, a quite a, an amusing story. Oh, yeah. Um, so in a BBC documentary that came out uh, in 1993, I think, by BBC, which uh, follows the Queen for, I think, a year. Um, so this footage just shows Her Majesty at Buckingham Palace um, for a reception for the uh, G7 leaders in 1991 in the run-up to the Gulf War. And Mr Heath, who had stood down as an MP in 1975, um, was there. And he was talking to, um, I think, the Secretary of State, James Baker, on his visit to Saddam Hussein in Baghdad. And he can be here, like he says proudly, oh, I went there. And the Queen added, I know you did, but you're expendable now. Which, you know, she's it's quite funny to see her laughing at her own joke. And yeah, so, I don't know. She is known for her, <laughs> her wit, really, yeah. isn't she? And one-liners. <laughs> yeah. And um, Tom, I know one thing that we, we have touched upon is the KGB rumours with mm. surrounding Wilson. Um, in the show, they kind of show it as um, the, the Queen's um, art gallery aide. He is the one who, who was found to have the, the kind of links to yes. the spies. Um, ha- what happened in history? Well, it's one of those kind of blotches on British history that's sort of still to this day like a little bit shadowy and a bit cloudy. Like um, we don't really know. To, by definition, I suppose, we're talking about espionage and we're talking about MI5, MI6 levels of the British government being infiltrated by the Soviet Union. So I suppose by definition, we'll never really know just how many were were maybe kind of communist sympathizers or whatever you want to call it really it's quite it's quite interesting with that it could be could be talking hundreds could be talking 
dozens. It's fascinating. And there were critics of Wilson, of course. Um, mm. There's one quite interesting episode of The Crown season three where um, Mountbatten kind of teases a, a coup yeah. <laughs> against the government. I love saying coup. <laughs> um, how much truth in that was there? Because I was really fascinated by this. I knew nothing about it at all. We think it's a bit of a conspiracy theory. Um, like there was kind of stuff with the the Times, William Rees-Mogg, interestingly, Jacob Rees-Mogg's dad. Um, he wrote kind of editorials at the time, um, basically backing for... Wilson to just criticize, criticizing Wilson and um, Cecil King, who was director of Bank of England at the Bank of England at the time, he apparently kind of had this conversation with um, with Mountbatten and urged it all on. And from what we gather, Mountbatten was quite a reluctant party in all this, but did ultimately agree to it. And from I think from whether the way that the Crown kind of puts it across is probably relatively accurate, whereby the Queen told him to kind of calm down and then he found himself this new role with Prince Charles later on. Interesting. Um, so just moving on um, to the kind of relationships that the Queen has with other characters, particularly with Philip and Margaret. Um, starting with Margaret, she's without a doubt one of the stars of The Crown and um, played by Helena Bonham Carter this time around. So in the series, we see her come into her own with her husband, Lord Snowden. They travel over to America on a trip and end up on a diplomatic mission to get a bailout from Lyndon B. Johnson. And while there, Margaret becomes a sensation and she even asks the Queen for more responsibilities, which she eventually doesn't get. Her storyline spirals and her relationship with Snowden breaks down. She's then pictured with Roddy Llewellyn in Mystique, which brings about the end of her marriage to Snowden. Frederica. <laughs> Big storyline. <laughs> um, so, I mean, obviously it's been really interesting in season two to see Margaret finally get married and be in love. And her and Anthony were this incredibly glamorous couple that everyone was kind of obsessed with. And it all seemed perfect for, I think, probably the first two years and then started to fall apart. And I think the way that she was received in America, I mean, there are lots of reports of different things, but... I'm not sure she was as popular as maybe she perceived herself to be. I think um, the press weren't that kind to her over there. There were lots of comments about how much she drank and like how rude she was to, about Hollywood stars. Yeah, well, as far as we can... There are quite a few biographers who claim that she was raucous, apparently, was the way that she was described. Um, and that where Anthony was almost like there to calm her down a little bit. And there was quite a few odd little things that you hear and apparently she was um the telegraph reports a couple of years ago that um that she had a temporary ban like an unofficial yeah, ban from visiting the as states well, for being raucous yes apparently um which yeah it's fascinating and maybe maybe not so much shown on the crown where it's a little bit more um like she was well received and and she got she gets on well with Lyndon johnson doesn't she i think that's one of the main inaccuracies um because i think it, whereas in season one and season two the portrayal of Margaret was quite accurate, whereas in season three, there's this, well, you know, they portray her as being fabulous and getting along with the US president when actually it wasn't true. Yeah, so what was her relationship like with Lyndon? Because in um, the season three, they're, they're having naughty limerick contests, they're dancing, they're singing. It looks, I want to go to that party, basically. Well, well, <laughs> they said that they just, you know, that there's not much about their relationship at all, that they just danced, they took a couple of pictures, but that was about it. There wasn't much report on that. That's really interesting that they've kind of made it into something. And it, it kind of happens in that episode dedicated to Margaret in, 
in general, she is very much shown in the bathtub with a crown on. She's, I'm the star, get the queen. <laughs> and um, she did have quite a complex relationship with the queen, we are led to believe, right? I think they're very close, but because of their roles, it just meant that there was always a degree of separation. Mm. And you definitely see that in the first two seasons of The Crown, that as her older sister, but also as the queen, she's really struggling with how to deal with Margaret. And I think Margaret's response is basically to go off the rails, ultimately. I mean, even marrying Anthony Armstrong Jones was quite a controversial choice of husband but the queen wasn't going to say no this time around but you know margaret the way that she met these people and ended up going to mystique she was running in quite wild london circles i would have said and was you know big good friends she's met the beatles she hung out with celebrities mystique was basically a party island at that time and um i imagine the queen although she was loved margaret was quite at a loss of what to do about her in the end i would say yeah it's the kind of scandal that happened that no one wanted really yeah definitely i think to be fair to margaret um it's sort of natural isn't it you'd, you'd say like she's sort of i suppose we're seeing a little bit of it now with maybe harry and william where you've got one brother who's going to be king of england one day and one brother who is slowly losing his place in the line of succession it's yeah, sort of obvious isn't it? yeah exactly <laughs> Yeah. So I think the parallels between, let's say, a modern-day Harry with a with Margaret back then are probably quite fair, I would argue. Yeah. And um, what happened with her relationship with Lord Snowden in real life? Um, we see on the crown that they, you know, they have real explosive arguments, and um, there's a lot of accusations of cheating going around on both sides. Um, how much do we know about the inside of their relationship? I think the cheating definitely on his side and I think you know well, we know she had at least two affairs but he was almost constantly having affairs from the beginning of their relationship I think he was kind of polygamous always and um their their marriage really began to break down when there was this argument about where they wanted their country house so Anthony Armstrong Jones was set to inherit this kind of cottage from his parents in West Sussex I think whereas Margaret had been gifted a bit of land near a Windsor, and that's where she wanted the country home. And apparently Anthony went ahead, kind of refurbed his little cottage and used it as a bit of a lover's nest to uh, carry on with all his affairs. And I think when Margaret found this out, it was pretty much the end for her of that romance. It's quite a big problem to have, where, you know, where yeah. your country house is going to be. <laughs> a friend of Margaret was quoted as saying that the flings used to upset her a lot she had some too but never as long as his they were in revenge affairs she just wanted to feel desired which is quite a sad thing yeah oh that's really mm, sad. Um, <laughs> and um, just touching back on the country home um, one thing that we do see in the crown is um, Anthony's bathroom is filled with newspaper cuttings um, of the royal family maybe not being perfect any truth there? I've not heard <laughs> not that. At all. That's amazing. I don't know. Tom, have you heard this? No. Not Sounds like the kind of thing that might have happened, really. Their, their relationship yeah. was quite tense. <laughs> and I think he was always quite, you know, he wasn't in awe of the royal family as other people might be. I think he was always quite um, jokey about them. Moving on to Prince Philip, um, 
he is a little quieter in season three. You know, previously we have seen him in alleged dalliances um, upsetting the Queen. But now he seems a lot more quieter and more reserved. The main events in season three this time focus around his extracurricular activity, as it were. So mainly he sets up a documentary on the BBC and invites cameras into Buckingham Palace, which doesn't go exactly to plan. And he then becomes a little bit obsessed with the space race, but discovers the astronauts he's been admiring for the past couple of weeks aren't really all they live up to. Tom, fascinating Prince Philip, the storylines. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think Prince Philip in general is a fascinating character. Um, so the stuff with the the royal family documentary to start with. So it comes out in 1969. I think he he kind of saw himself with the coronation to start with. I think that kind of paved the way for this this documentary. Was that he um, was adamant about the coronation being filmed and he wanted it to be accessible to make to basically put the royal family into the public's front room for the first time. And he built up quite a lot of kind of opposition to this. Like the Archbishop of Canterbury was apparently vividly against it, as was Winston Churchill. But Philip really put his foot down on this front and made a, and insisted, and the Queen backed him. And then ultimately the coronation was filmed, and it was a huge success. Um, you know, every, everybody crowding around television sets to watch it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think kind of on the back of that, he wanted to go a little bit further with the, the 1969 Royal Family documentary. And there's footage there of him sort of barbecuing sausages with Princess Anne, playing games with Prince Charles. It's very surreal. Um, and I think all the narrative of it is that it, it backfired, essentially, and that this um, almost mystical air of the royal family, it kind of lost its magic, um, i.e. that like they're, they're a little bit different, they're a little bit set apart, and almost like going back to sort of, you know, his, like Tudor kind of historical figures that they're, they're a little bit extra to what the normal public would, would imagine them to be. That all kind of came crashing down. And, um, you know, there are quotes about it comparing it to Pandora's box. David Attenborough was put, reportedly furious about it, claiming what? that, <laughs> yeah, apparently he said that you're killing the monarchy and that sort of thing. It's, it's fascinating. And um, so Philip was very much put back in his place on that one, I think. Mm, there's even a scene in, in season three. It's really funny how they're sitting around watching the telly like a, a ye olde goggle box almost <laughs> and um you know they're like who's gonna want to watch people watching telly and yeah maybe philip was actually onto something there <laughs> it's become such a big channel four show now yeah um but yeah he was also weirdly obsessed with the space race yes yeah i read he almost um had a kind of midlife crisis having met buzz aldrin and all of the um the guys that went um to the moon at buckingham palace prince philip who was, you know, had a budding career as a naval officer, was a real boisterous character, I would say, and actually very good leader. Um, met these guys, and his adventurous spirit, I feel, just felt incredibly jealous of them. I think he was like, what have I done with my life? I would like to go to the moon too, is the reaction um, some people say that he had. That fits with the whole narrative around him, to be yeah. fair. He almost... I think that the crown does this really well, actually, where um, from season one all the way through, like thematically, like the the idea that he almost has a sort of identity crisis, doesn't he? That as you're saying, he's had he's got that naval history behind him. He's been this kind of macho figure, leader of men, and then all of a sudden he's in this role where he can't really express himself. And whenever he does try to express himself, even with something like the royal family documentary, he's immediately kind of silenced again and pushed back. So I think that. The moon, uh, the moon landing, almost like played into that 
imagination, that kind of explorer in him, if that makes sense. And I thought there was actually a really nice parallel with this and Prince Harry this year when there were these two um, guys that decided to fly a revamped Spitfire around the world and Prince Harry sent this message to them before being like, wish I could join you, and it just shows that he's almost inherited this same kind of love of adventure, but then is stopped from doing things because of his royal role. It could also be argued that the documentary that Prince Philip did, because they said that he opened a Pandora box and even Princess Anne hated it. She said that, you know, the media scrutiny after that was just so high. It could also be, you know, one of the reasons Prince Harry and Meghan are struggling so much now. Mm, absolutely. So I mean, you know, they now we can't imagine a time without documentaries about the royal family. Every single inch of their life is looked at with a critical eye. And I guess perhaps Philip introduced this in a way. Yeah. Not knowing what it would become, no, 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 of course. No. Obviously, but yeah, yeah, I think definitely. And um, Frederica, I know you had some interesting yeah. views on Prince Philip because he is, you know, love him or hate him, there, there is a kind of difficulty to him. It's hard to maybe portray him exactly. Yeah, I mean, life. he's incredibly gaff prone. And <laughs> um, I don't even know if it's gaff. I think he's of an era where the kind of attitudes that he still keeps are just not ones that would necessarily be acceptable in current times. Um, he's very blunt and just, yeah, his whole take on the world is just um, really outdated. So there are elements of his character I think would be quite not dangerous to show in The Crown, but I just don't think they would go down well with a mod modern audience. I mean, you can imagine he may have said, like, inappropriate things about certain female members of the royal family as a joke and these things I don't really think work on camera as much or even in a dramatization anymore um so it's sad that he's a flattened if he is a flattened character I'm yet to watch season three but um because obviously he's a huge character but then I do understand the need to be slightly careful about some of the things he might say yeah, we did discuss um, previously on, on another episode of Netflix um, the kind of portrayal Tobias Menzies, who plays Prince Philip. It's very, very flat, and like you say, um, he doesn't really get the storylines this time around, whereas in seasons one and two, obviously, Philip is front and centre. And I was just wondering um, what your guys' takes on it are, really, because it's a shame, almost, because he is such a vibrant character. I think it's more to show that they're saying like in season one and two, the Queen and Philip were going through some, you know, marital problems, whereas now they kind of reach kind of like a bl wedding bliss or like, um, so they, they're just comfortable around each other and Philip has come to talk terms with the fact that, you know, he's the husband of the Queen and so yeah, I think it's mainly because of that. I also feel like they're probably setting up him up now as a stable husband because later on he's going to come in and actually be the one to guide Diana through some of her marital issues and strife and the struggles that she has being married to Charles and we've seen that Prince Philip has gone through all of that in season one and two and maybe now this is just you know his moment to be a bit more at ease with it. I think there's maybe an element of with this season in particular as well like a almost coming of age with him if that makes sense almost like a so Obviously, he's kind of boisterous and everything like that in season one and two. But then with this season three where you've got um, the Royal Family documentary backfiring and then everything with the with the moon landings and that experience and him maybe kind of just recognising that he's not going to be 
a military hero, explorer and activist and almost come into terms with his role now of being, um, you know, the Queen's husband and being the Duke of Edinburgh and that's going to be it forever sort of thing. Yeah. And you do see him like playing polo, don't you? I mean, he was like a huge polo player. I think he did quite a lot to rejuvenate the sport in Britain. Well, that does lead us on nicely to Prince Charles. Great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love a segue. <laughs> um, so Prince Charles, played by Josh O'Connor, he really is at the forefront of season three. So now he's grown up, he has to take on more responsibilities and we see his investiture at Carnarvon Castle in 1969. So later on, we see him exchanging letters with King Edward VIII, who was exiled in France for abandoning his role as king. They seem to be very similar in thoughts and beliefs, and I know we'll touch upon this in a bit. But most importantly, we see Charles meet Camilla Shand for the first time. Their relationship blossoms from the off, but it transpires she's in love with another man, Andrew Parker Bowles. In The Crown, the Queen Mother and Mountbatten conspire to split up Charles and Camilla on account of her love for Andrew and Andrew's fling with Princess Anne. It's very complicated. But how did it happen in real life? Personally, I think this is one thing where The Crown gets it wrong. Just going to go all in with that straight away. (laughs) Um, I think this narrative that Charles and Camilla was this whirlwind romance and had, had he... And her had their way, they would have been, Diana would have never come onto the scene and he would have married Camilla and she would have been the woman of his dreams. I think is a little bit unfair. I think maybe from his perspective, that could be the case. Um, but Camilla, from everything you read, was at the time just madly, madly in love with Andrew Parker Bowles. Um, and the impression that you read from any kind of biographer on this is that, yes, there was kind of almost like a summer romance between the two of them. And, and he was properly, Charles was properly in love with Camilla but I think Penny Junior in particular writes a lot about this where um, Camilla just only really had eyes for Andrew and this narrative that particularly the stuff with Mountbatten and the Queen Mother blocking something that would have happened had they not intervened I don't think is is strictly speaking true. Yeah I mean I just don't think that they at the time would have ever married you know Mm. there's this whole idea that oh poor Charles he would have proposed to her but you have to bear in mind that the reason he married Diana, one of the main reasons was because she was a virgin and she was known to be a virgin and and she had no history with with other men, whereas Camilla did. And she wasn't of a right rank, I don't think, to be seen as Charles's future wife. And I don't really think it would have crossed his mind that she was ever... I don't think he ever thought to propose to her. Um... But then that said, I think it's also nice that they are exploring the way that they met because because of what happened subsequently with the affair uh, during his marriage to Diana. I think Camilla's got, you know, quite a bad uh, run of it or she's been perceived as, you know, this this marriage breaker. And I, I think that their feelings towards each other were pretty genuine right right from the start, actually. I didn't necessarily agree that she wouldn't have married her because of... Be- she wasn't perceived like the right, you know, partner. Because um, I think you would have, if we, if she represent, I can't say that word. Sorry, <laughs> if she felt the same way about him, um, I reckon. And yeah, the support from you know the Queen and Mountbatten, you probably would have. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. It is actually because, um, especially bringing up the the notion of an engagement in the Crown. Um, Mountbatten and the Queen Mother they rush to the Queen Elizabeth and they say Charles is going to propose we need to stop him and um, the Queen says no it's fine it's absolutely fine he loves her and they said well you don't know the full story 
and that's when they delve into Anne and Andrew's kind of tryst, if it were. <laughs> um, so one thing that you do see is is kind of time compressed a lot. Um, they meet in a club, basically, um, and it's Camilla is eyes on Andrew and Charles, but chooses Charles on that occasion. And um, while Anne goes off with Andrew, was that kind of the case in real life? Was it really that close? I think, didn't they meet at a polo match? Yeah, so he sees her at a polo match, but then talks to her properly in a club, and that's when they, they properly start to bond. Um, she is kind of... Uh, uh, Anne warns Charles that she has this thing with Andrew, and he's like, oh, fine, like whatever, but Camilla seems very, very interested in Charles, and they kind of pursue a little relationship. Yeah, from what I can tell, their relationship started pretty soon after they first ever met, and... I think it lasted for around 18 months before Charles had to then uh, leave Britain to go off and be in the Navy. And then that's when um, Andrew proposed to her or their engagement was announced and then obviously Camilla got married. But, I mean, there are lots of different reports about what happened because I've even read that actually the... And this is obviously in a very pro-Charles-Camilla relationship way, but I read that um, Charles's engagement was somehow forced by sorry no Andrew's engagement to Camilla was in a way forced by Andrew and uh, Camilla's dad who put an engagement announcement in the times before they'd even asked her about it oh wow but again this could just be a real (laughs) there's so many many conflicting things like you read about this interest Anne's role in all this is fascinating because you read things where I've read bits where it suggests that over that kind of 18-month, two-year period, Charles and Camilla's relationship was a little bit hot-cold, um, where she had the eyes for Andrew, essentially, but Andrew kept going off with other women as well. And while Andrew was was with Anne or with other women at the time, that was when she would kind of revert back to Charles. Um, so there's all sorts of different conflicting arguments with this. But I think, personally, I think the, the striking narrative is that had she had it her way, she would have always married Andrew Parker Bowles. And the narrative about Charles being denied a marriage that was that was ready-made for him is probably a little unfair. One thing that I found particularly interesting was Anne's role, because um, that's something that I wasn't really aware of. I didn't know that she had liaisons with um, Andrew Parker Bowles as well. And first thing I googled. Um, <laughs> how How kind of true to life was their relationship because um in the crown you know they say oh you shouldn't really go out with andrew and she's like all right (laughs) (laughs) fine like really chilled really sassy not bothered (laughs) um i think very true i think very always very casual um to put one word to it (laughs) (laughs) but um i think with that one as well andrew parker balls um comes from a catholic family so i think even before it kind of was able to get serious. I think Anne was always aware that marriage was never really on the cards. So I think even from the from the very early days, probably when they first started meeting each other, it was only ever going to be casual. Because um, obviously that kind of constitutionally speaking, marriage-wise, there's still a big taboo about it. So I think Anne and his relationship was always quite fun and apparently they get on really well now today. Um, like they're still kind of pictured together at Ascot. You'll see pictures of them. It's really fascinating to be honest, yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. And um obviously going forward to season four of The Crown, it's filming at the minute. Uh we know that Diana's gonna be heavily involved. Um she'll be played by Emma Corrin, who looks the double <laughs> already <laughs> from pictures. She looks exactly the same. Um what kind of 
what kind of storyline are we expecting to see? How do we expect to see Charles and Diana meet? And under what circumstances will they get married? What's the story there? Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> um, so Charles was dating Diana's sister for a bit, um, but they were kind of long-term family friends with the Windsors anyway, so I think they grew up in each other's periphery. I'm going to be really interested to see how the Crown chooses to portray it. I really hope that they do it from both sides. Um, I think in a way Diana is always very easily and quickly portrayed as a victim and I think although she was very young when she married Charles, it's quite two-sided, their relationship. So I just hope that they show it from both perspectives. Do you think they will? Uh, probably not. I reckon <laughs> they're going to go down the Diana victim route because it's the more dramatic one. Um, but, I mean, it just I think they only had dated or had kind of eight dates before Charles proposed. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it is, that's pretty quick. And I just and it sounded like even the proposal wasn't very romantic. I think it was kind of like he just asked her and then called his mum in the same room, being like, "I've done it." Mm-hmm. You know. <laughs> so um, it'll be really interesting to see how they portray all of that and and how what Charles's real feelings towards Diana were. Well, there are several. Well, of course, this is from her side because of, from her recordings, she says that, for instance, before the engagement and the marriage. Um, she was waiting, he was away for like a couple of months. She was waiting for him to send her flowers or a letter or a phone call and she didn't receive any of this. So she said uh, that was the moment that her heart broke. Um, so it would be interesting to see part of that, like how her relationship started and if they decide to portray, you know, as what she says in her recordings. Um, but I don't know if they will. It's hard because I guess there's so many different takes on it but Diana's kind of comes out on top all the time and mm. she's spoken so so much before her death about the relationship with Charles whether it was good or bad um I kind of can't see them going anywhere but being sympathetic to Charles in this case because that's how they've been in season three um Tom I wanted to bring you in on this point um he is he kind of finds a friend in in King Edward the eighth they they share letters they they feel like outsiders together and it as I say, it's very sympathetic towards both of them in season three. I think, to be fair, I think the crown in general is quite sympathetic to Edward. Um, I think season one and two, they're quite sympathetic compared to how the royal family talk about Edward. <laughs> um, but I think it's kind of a very natural fix-up. Um, and I think Charles, from a very early age, particularly from sort of the likes of Mountbatten and the Queen Mother, um, almost had a, a fascination with Edward. And he was almost kind of told when he was say 13 14 um he was almost highlighted the wallace simpson relationship with edward VIII, almost as an example of what not to do and i think this is very prevalent in charles particularly in the early years of the diana marriage where even if it's not the most romantic relationship of all time he's very kind of he wants to make it work and he's doing does everything he can to make it work so that there isn't another royal scandal of the likes of, of what Edward and Wallace obviously went through. Um, and I think the way that that's kind of put across is probably fair. I think a young Charles, sort of 17, 18 year old, was, was actually quite fascinated with Edward. And do you think he was kind of the outsider, I'll open this to everyone, the Crown very much portrays him as being uh, separate to his family because he doesn't quite share the same beliefs. You know, we see him going off script when he's talking at his investiture, mm-hmm. He, you know, spurs Welsh nationalism almost. 
and he doesn't really want to be the king that the queen wants him to be. I think he's incredibly different to Prince Philip, which means that almost naturally, because he's he doesn't follow his father figure, so I think maybe that just makes him a bit of a natural rebel because he's very much realised that he has to find his own way of doing this because he's not going to be like his dad. Um, and yeah, obviously over the years there have been moments when he's shown, he's kind of spoken out about having opinions on certain things like climate change, which has even been deemed you know, a bit dicey for the royal family to, to express their views on these things in, in any way. I don't... He's not obviously at the level of Edward because of what happened with the abdication. But, um, yeah, I think he's just doing things his way a bit more. Yeah, um, I think for, for Edward, I think it's quite interesting how um, like throughout the season, especially season one and two, they always take him as an example of what Tom said of what not to do, but not even like marrying the wrong person. They're like when the Queen was about to choose a new secretary and she wanted to choose the one that she wanted, they were like, no, you can't do that because... This is what Edward did. It's like, this is nothing to do with what Edward did, obviously. I'm choosing my own secretary, not the person I'm going to marry. So I think um, Charles kind of like, you know, is fascinated by Edward and wants to, and he, throughout his life has heard about things not to do like him. So I think that in a way, obviously, he didn't marry Camilla at first, um, but he wants to change certain things and possibly do what Edward didn't do. And then he still does marry Camilla in the end, of course. Um, So possibly the hardest question for today. In conclusion, I guess, do you think that the crown is, you know, historically accurate? Do you think it is making choices kind of on purpose to change things? Or, you know, what's your kind of thoughts on it, being royal experts as you all are? I think overall, to give it some credit, um, I think they do a pretty good job. Um, there's a bit of dramatic license here or there like we've discussed with um, sort of Charles's relationship with Camilla with Princess Margaret but in all fairness it is incredibly interesting and I think they're kind of within their rights for a bit of dramatic license here or there to make that storyline what it is um, but overall as a theme if you're going to look at season one to three as a whole I think it's fairly accurate I think, well, um, Peter Morgan has, tra- has maintained as much historical accuracy as he can. And even Olivia Coleman said she has these Dropbox axes where there were thousands and thousands of old reports, old clips of the Queen that she had to study. So I think it still needs to be, you know, a fiction and interesting. And because it's quite, sometimes it can be quite slow, the crown, but that's just because they're trying to be as accurate as possible. And sometimes history is not as fun. But um, I, I, I think it's a bit of both. Yeah, I mean, I think the kind of um, everyday life of the royal family is pretty dry, so obviously they need to throw some drama at it. But it is based around historical milestones, in fact. And um, things like the costume and and the settings and the aesthetic of it are incredibly accurate, I would say. So, yeah, I think uh, it's mainly accurate. Well, that's all we've got time for. Thank you so much, Tom, Martina, Frederica. Thank you. And thank you so much for listening to our chat about the Crown Season 3 to hear all about the fascinating historical accuracy or some inaccuracies of the series. And if you liked what you heard from us, please make sure you give us a follow on Twitter at NetflixPod and get involved with the debate. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.